that film was set up by Paul, for Paul. That's one of the main reasons the Beatles ended. Because uh, I can't speak for George, but I have I pretty damn well know. We got fed up of, of being sidemen for Paul. After Brian died, that's what happened, began to happen to us, you know. And the, the camera work was set up to show Paul and not to show anybody else, and that's how I felt about it. And on top of that, the people that cut it, cut it as Paul is God and we're just lying around there, you know. And that's what I felt. And I knew there were some shots of Yoko and, and me that had been just chopped out of the film for no other reason than the people were oriented towards Engelbert Humperdinck. You know, and that's, I felt sick. My name's Eric Taras. I'm Richard Buskin. The Beatles. Naked.
So I took the plunge and watched the Let It Be film again a couple of nights ago. You know, we were going to do this show, even though that movie's baked into my psyche, I just decided, you know, got to watch it again. And there was a part of me that actually wasn't looking forward to it, which is amazing, being that it's actual Beatles that I'm going to be watching. You mean the intimate experience on film, I take it? Yeah, really. This non-documentary documentary that doesn't tell a story. But anyway, sat down, watched it, and it gets off to a somber start with Paul sitting at the piano, Ringo just there by him, and watching Mel and the crew you know, start loading stuff into Twickenham Studios. Not the way that I would start the movie, really. I mean, it just starts off on that tone, and it's a downer to begin with. Well, we're almost as guilty right now, because what we should really do is to set this up a little bit as well. Obviously, the greatest Beatle event we're likely to see in a while is about to happen in November, and that's the three days of, of Peter Jackson's version of Get Back you know, going back and revisiting those 50-odd hours of of film, of 16-millimeter film, and constructing an entirely new story. Um, I had the pleasure of helping out on a couple of sections of it. I'm very curious to see if those things will show up in the film. Can you tell us what they are? Yeah, I can, because uh, I will be very surprised if there are not flashbacks. And what I mean by that is, if you saw the latest trailer... They betrayed a little something that they hadn't in the previous trailer earlier in the summer, and that was you start seeing pictures from Hamburg. You saw a little snatch of the White Suits Tokyo show. I have a feeling, it was never expressed to me this way, I have a feeling that they're going to, when the Beatles are talking about something, for example, on January 25th, 1969, when Paul is talking about looking back at the movie they shot in, or the home movies they shot in India, and he's kind of teasing John it's not really you is it I mean you're not acting like you none of us were Mm. and I have a feeling they'll start showing some India there you know whether it's their home movies I don't know my part of this was uh, my friend Larry Kane who was embedded with them on the 64 5 and part of the 66 tours but also maintained a relationship with them afterwards Uh, he had shot what turns out now to be the last surviving interview of John and Paul together as Beatles from May of 1968 when they were in New York and they were promoting the birth of Apple. Uh, They really wanted a high-quality copy of that particular interview. And, you know, Larry couldn't find the original film. It was shot on 16-millimeter news film. And total film's about 11 minutes and some of it, it, there's a real crappy version of it out on the internet. And and Larry actually put out the best version he had, which was pretty crappy, on his Lennon Revealed book years ago as a, as a bonus DVD. But uh, Mr. Jackson wanted something of better quality. And he was willing, I think at the time, to really spend some money on AI to, to try to enhance which section of the interview. I don't know. But he was going to do that. And I was called in to see if I could find the original film. And with a little help from my friends and some trickery, I was able, I had a pretty good idea of where a better version of it was, and it turned out to be there. So I got a little bit of insight into what else was going on with this with this film. Now it's a miniseries. Which, of course, makes me wonder, I mean, it's great for context to have these flashbacks. At first, I thought you were talking about acid trips, but it's... Well, they might be. <laughs> but what that also tells me is 
we're not going to be getting just six hours of unseen footage from Get Back. There's going to be this other stuff taking up some of the running time. I think, to tell you the truth, six hours of the 80 minutes we just watched would be really rough. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, put together like that, choice of shots, all the jump cuts, the sort of really crappy editing that goes on in that film. Oh, yeah. Well, I, see, I've jumped ahead, and I shouldn't have done Speaking of jump cuts, I've jumped ahead. What I meant to say is is that, I yes, I, I think six hours of that, I think the, it'll be mainly that. And I think you're, I'm just talking about very small interludes where they show a little bit of this, a little bit of that for context, just to break it up a little bit. I think that this is a more sweeping story. I think this is going to be a better snapshot of where these guys were, not just making this project, but where they were at that time period and, you know, coming off of a of a high, I think. I mean, the White Album was a smashing success, and I, I think they should have, you know, the way things looked in Let It Be, the film, has cast a pall over that entire period that might not be there. Well, that's absolutely right. And, you know, the... Lennon Remembers interview, the Rolling Stone interview, 1970, conducted by Jan Wenner, where, you know, John, at various points, is really negative about the Let It Be project and about the movie. He alludes to the fact that, you know, people say how miserable Yoko looks in the movie. Well, you be in the same room with all these uptight egos and see how you feel. And also, you know, just about how miserable the sessions were and him and George didn't want to do it. And that has really framed it forevermore, just as his comments about the White Album sessions, you know, one person sort of leading and everyone else serving as the backing musicians framed that album. And I don't think in either case it was really fair. It's something that he said in the moment. But also I re-listened to those segments of the interview just, you know, before we started doing this show and it's how it reads in print. You know, that's always a problem because it removes the emotion of the comments. And when you actually listen to John talking in that interview, it doesn't come over as quite so negative. He's just, you know, picking on certain points about that film. But I do see where he had reason to gripe because we know that the first cut of the film, which I think what well, ran to like over three hours, maybe, the rough cut, that's what I've heard. Yeah, a lot of John and Yoko. And so the consensus was, let's cut a lot of that stuff out. And what we're left with in the Let It Be film, in terms of Yoko, is just her presence. You know, she doesn't say anything, I don't think, in the film, or hardly anything. You just sort of see her there, sort of, you know, kind of lingering, or lurking, as John might have said, you know, at the sessions... And again, that plays into the narrative of her as this kind of witch queen just sitting there watching over and, and wanting to join in. Whereas some of the you know footage that we've seen for the new Get Back movie and also what we hear on the audio from the sessions, you know, you hear Yoko engaging with the group members, laughing, talking. Everything could have been framed so differently. I, it's very, very interesting we wanted, I know I personally wanted, before we did this show, to revisit, I literally went back to a beta copy 
I got out my beta deck. I do a lot of transfer stuff, as some of you people know. And so I made a capture on my, you know, laptop from the original beta cut, you know, that was out on United Artists uh, videotape way back when in the uh, late 70s, as I said, on beta format. Because I realized another thing, Richard, is that pretty much every copy of Scene in the last 30 years of Let It Be has been mucked with some way. Yeah. So um, we have a lot of tools now that you know anybody can access to improve, quote-unquote, the sound, the picture. And the original had kind of been lost. I remember when I saw it first at the Harvard Square Theater, probably about 1974. And I remember how murky, how dirty it looked. Uh, when I say dirty, I mean bits of dust and lots of scratches. I remember everything yeah. looked like what I learned later in film school, we would call a work print. It looks like it just been beaten to crap, yeah. you know, uh, which is now an aesthetic, but we won't go there. I wanted to go back to the most pure version of this thing to see what the hell it really was in the first place. And that led me, you know, we were discussing this the other day, led to watching this. And so, yes, here we are at this very peculiar documentary that doesn't say anything. Yeah, there's there's just no story, is there? Zero story. You know, we Zero explanation. Yeah, well, and why are they sitting in what, obviously it's a soundstage at Twickenham Studios, but for the viewer in 1970, what are they doing in this warehouse? I mean, it looks crappy. Yeah. You start off with the somber music, guys loading in the equipment, and this sort of weird setting. They're not in a studio. What are they doing? And that's how it basically proceeds. There's no storyline. They cut into songs. We, you know, you could go from halfway through one verse into the middle eight, maybe. Um, you know, and often the audio isn't synced with the, the visuals. They've obviously just dubbed in some audio. Yeah, uh, yeah. In a couple of places, it's pretty obvious, right? And of course, as we know, the whole episode of George leaving and coming back that disappears but also we have the appearances by people that i mean what are they doing there who's that black guy playing the organ <laughs> and it, not even at the beginning of the apple sessions that billy preston appears just sitting there part of the group it would have been great even at the time you know the when the album the album obviously came out before the film as i remember it i think the album is april and the film was may if if i have that sequence right Maybe there was this idea that everybody just assumed we knew what was going on. If it had been presented as a proper documentary should, you know, this is... Well, this is more like they didn't care if we knew what was going on. Yeah, well, it, this was a salvage job. You could kind of tell it, it had all the hallmarks of a salvage job. I remember McCartney in print uh, saying... Yeah, well, you know, the Beatles, we got uh, next year all locked up because this is in 69. He says, you know, we got we got one in the can that's, you know, ready to come out and yeah. kind of upbeat about it. Well, I mean, when I first saw the film in the cinema, I was a kid. And my assumption by the time we got to the rooftop concert was that they'd just been rehearsing for that concert. That was it. But that's about as much narrative as there is in that film. But why a roof and why no audience and why? There was so many needless questions so if they just come out and said okay th the whole idea of get back is we're gonna get simple again you know less studio overdubs and 
a, a more live feel. Uh, if you explain that at the beginning and say, so we've set ourselves three weeks to write and rehearse and then play in front of an audience because it seems to be the story underneath that you're catching a little bit of is Paul says, you know, have, have we decided we're never going to do it again with an audience? And, you know, maybe they thought that these little subtle bits of conversation, of which there was very little, would be enough for us to fill in the blanks. It, it was a bad decision because I, I, you know, you're wondering what the hell is going on for half the time. I mean, the, you know, you're speaking of Yoko. I kept little notes. Yoko shows up at two minutes and 20 seconds into the film. Yeah. <laughs> but no explanation of who she is. You know, it's just this, this, this Japanese lady sitting there near John. Well, I guess except that I suppose at the time everyone knew who she was. So fair enough. I guess everyone, everyone who's going to see this film. Probably, yes. I mean, oh, and, and everyone who wasn't going to see this film. I mean, you know, this is post-Bedding and Two Virgins. Yeah. In terms of the release of the film, I mean, it's, you know, post-Bedding. So heavy waltz. If we look at the film, you're right. It begins with no explanation. You're in the sound studio. Why there? I got, I've got a theory. And are you to know it's a sound studio? That's what I'm saying. It looks like they're just in a warehouse. Yeah, it does look like a warehouse. I think with the ladders, and I, 
I think in some of the scenes you can kind of see lighting racks and things where, yeah. where film lighting would be on. My guess is the Beatles are funding this thing. They do actually record. If you if you stood in Studio 2 and looked down from the control room, it do, it does kind of look like a big old warehouse. It's like a big box building, mm-hmm. you know, big yeah. box store. So maybe that was part of it. But I think that what it was was the flexibility of lighting. You know, they wouldn't have to bring in all kinds of lighting. They obviously didn't feel comfortable or EMI didn't feel comfortable with them blocking out Studio 2 for a month so that they could, you know, really make a proper, like, this is actually where the Beatles have worked for years, where they're comfortable, where they like coming, where the the mood is right, which would have been a better project. So maybe this was a compromise there. Yeah. You know, obviously they'd filmed at Twickenham. They'd most recently done, like, Hey Jude and Revolution promos there. Yeah. Being on a soundstage with the ultra-high ceilings and everything, you know, they're set up to do the lighting they want. But that then begs, why is the lighting not better? Yeah, that's a great idea. That's a, there's, there's a lot. I mean, there's so many. There's also some accidents when I think about this. And one of the accidents is when you don't have any visuals and you listen to this, the, um, the tapes, I know very quickly I'm like, I want to get every single Leslie speaker and burn it. You know, that, that sort of Leslie speaker sound on the guitar is just awful. I mean, it's just not... It, it's contributing to this sort of, you know... Mm. The, the the actual sort of studio recordings that George Martin got out of this are so, so much better than sort of the the atmospheric recordings, the Nagra reels to me. Yeah. Uh, I just don't like the sound they were going for, which doesn't help. Uh, as John, in some ways, John Lennon said what? It was the shittiest load of badly recorded shit with bad feeling or something like that. Bad feeling to it ever. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, I mean... The sound was a poor decision. The, the Leslie thing was a poor decision, and and it's kind of mixed out in the in the finished records if you think about it. Yeah, this film is released, you know, in the wake of the official announcement that the Beatles have split. Yeah. When I went to see it, they were no more, and it starts off with what feels like funeral music. I wonder if in the stage of cutting this, and maybe we'll get to ask Michael Lindsay Hogg this, did he already know? Was there some sort of instruction? Because this film had to have been locked down ugh, March. You know, I don't think there could have been any real major changes, especially because of the technicality. Let's Another technical problem. Why did the film look kind of dark? Why did it look kind of dirty? It started off as a television show. It was supposed right. to be a TV show. So it was not shot in 35-millimeter film. It was shot in 16 because the 4 by 3 aspect ratio complements television without having to do what we call pan and scan. Now, what about the option in those days of filming it on video? Interesting. Would have been cheaper, probably. Video was in a funny kind of place then. And I wonder if, you know, we had competing television systems around the world. So you had, you know, PAL uh, phase alternating linear in, in England, which is what, 600 and something lines of resolution, but you had NTSC, the older system in the United States, and then you had CCAM in France. and then yeah, the- NTSC, never the same color. <laughs> well, NTSC is also Japan. Uh, I think the problem would have been in the translation. Like in those days when you got a transfer, you didn't have, you know, digital... Uh, digital to analog conversion boxes and stuff that you know really could make this stuff look good. So sometimes 
copying one video format to the next was very, very difficult to do. So oftentimes they would shoot in systems, video systems that were, you know, this is an NTSC tape, this is a PAL tape, that type of thing. I'm sure it had something to do with quality control. Like you knew what was going to happen with film. The other thing too was videotape editing in those days was a real pain in the ass. And, you know, it was hard to get down to the exact frame, if you will. So, um, so okay, so they shoot on sixteen. They shoot on sixteen because it it complements television. All in it, you can you could uh, telecine that to the video systems all around the world, and it would be consistent. So, uh, ex- except I, I think that they probably shot it in twenty five frames as as opposed to twenty four frames per second would be my guess. Mm. But here's the problem: when you go to a theater, you can't. Sh- in those days, you wouldn't show a, a sixteen millimeter film. So you know they wanted they were expecting thirty five. Today, no big deal. Everything's digital. In those days, big deal. Now you have to do something called an optical transfer. And they would have done this after they had completely edited the film because otherwise it becomes a hideous expense and even more difficult to cut together. So after they had, you know, after Michael Lindsay Hogg had put together what he had put together, that would have then been taken. Um, and And I don't know if they would have done it from the negative or the positive. I suspect that they did it from the positive, which would, once it's a generation removed, you know... Ended up as a big negative. Well, no, just just go into... Um, you're, you're taking some generational steps away from the original negative, which was 16 mil. And, uh, you know, did they... I, I don't know if they printed it. I think what they would have done is probably printed what we call a, a positive, a reversal film. Yeah. Anyway, today's technology, you're going to see something very, very different. Having um, gone back to the original negative, hours and hours of this, we are allowed to do a lot of things. One thing you got in the original is pretty much uncropped, I think, except in places where you and I have discussed there's an awful lot of close-ups in the original Let It Be. Yeah, and not particularly good ones. I mean, often you want close-up for intimacy, but some of these, the angles aren't great, the lighting isn't great, the cropping, if if, there, if it was cropped, certainly the framing isn't great. Did you notice this watching it? It seems like sometimes we're looking around and peering through equipment. Like, there'll be a shot of George, but there'll be kind of like an out-of-focus mic stand kind of almost in the foreground. Yes. It, it, yeah. it seemed like, now maybe that was the aesthetic, of, yeah, the sort of cinema verite, and and sneaking, you know, we're a fly on the wall. There's no explanation here. We're just we're just hanging around like a fly, and 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 maybe that was what the aim was. It's not going to be that at all with what Mr. Jackson is doing. Well, also, if you look at a lot of UK TV from the 1960s, whether it's drama shows, pop shows, a lot of close-ups, and you know, sometimes extreme close-ups which you don't really see as much today. And I really like it. it you know, it adds to the atmospherics. And uh, Michael Lindsay Hogg, he directed, you know, some Ready, Steady, Go, and including, I think, The Stones doing Under My Thumb as the very last thing on the last show. And it's shot almost as a video. And again, you know, lots of close-ups. This was going to be for TV. So maybe it was in that vein he, he was shooting like that. I think that, and another possible thought, is the Beatles' experience with the fans had now 
in the last few years, well, it was pretty much non-existent after 1966 in the flesh. Right. And I think that when you did see the Beatles in 66, for the most part, you were very far away. Um, you know, they were kind of over at second base and you're out in, you know, the bleachers or, you know, behind the plate or whatever. So there may have been a little bit of, you know, here's what the Beatles look like now. You know, <laughs> we're going to get right up in their grill for most of this. Well, movie. I think it was that it was that intimacy thing that we're there in the room with them, except I never felt like I was um, because it's too disjointed. You know, there's I think in at Twickenham. I don't recall a complete song. I may be wrong about that, but I don't recall a complete song there at all. You know, we just get snatches of songs and, uh, yeah, there's just no through story whatsoever. No, there's not. As a matter of fact, in the running order I have down, besides the dirge we opened with, is there's a, a sort of distorted version of Don't Let Me Down, and we, yeah. we go to the corny one, which was Maxwell's Silverhammer, Yep, and then we went to actually one of the a, a very early bright and hopeful spot, which was uh, the the two of us. That was the fast version where where Paul is kind of doing his uh, Elvis impression, which was was very uh, very funny. I thought. Yeah, and then you got them running through. I've got a feeling. Uh, oh, darling, and then they talk a little bit about songwriting in the old days and. That's the lead into a version of right. one after nine oh nine. That one where they're doing two of us, the fast version, and they're you know John and Paul at the mic. Beautiful, love. Well, that. Yeah, why not that, more of that? Why not the whole version of that? Well, and that always resonated with me from the first time I saw the film, right? And as you say, there could be a lot more of that. Instead of which, especially at Twickenham, that's where I agree with what John says. You know that it was cut you know, for Paul, that movie, it seems. I'm not saying that's what actually happened, but that's the impression because it does feel like Paul's leading the proceedings. He's the only one who seems to be into it. Yeah, you'll see George and John smile and, and Ringo at times, but generally it's Paul who's upbeat and the others are just going along and, you know, come on, guys, let's now get on with the work. I don't think it frames him in a very good way, actually. He may have thought at the time it's going to look good, but it doesn't. Um, he look, It looks like he's just taken over. And just from some of the footage we've seen in the trailer for Get Back and the teaser, we know that they had other stuff that they could have cut in there to you know balance it out and not make it look like Paul's the only one who's into this. I wonder if Paul was the only one or his camp were the only ones actively giving input to the director. It could be that. I would say that at 60, it's funny you mentioned this when you do, because at 16 minutes into the film, we get our first indication that something is wrong. Well, the riffs, uh, there's no riffs. I mean, it's, it's nice to no, get, but it's, just to look, get what so you and I are on memories. Uh, but it's not it's not together so that it's not sounding together so we even on play it until we or we can stop we and say it's not together we, if we had a but tape the, we go an hour and it just tape down play it out you'd throw that out straight yeah right away. but yeah. no it's like it's it's complicated now so see if we can get it simpler and then complicate it where it needs complications but it's complicated it's in the bit even no but you, i mean you know i mean i'll play just the chords. 
I'm, I'm trying to help you know, but I always hear myself mm. annoying you. And I'm trying to, no, I, I get so hard to say it. But you know what I mean? I know, but you know. Because it can take even longer. Okay, look, life, I'm yeah. not trying to say that. Yeah. I'm not trying to say that. You, you know, you, you're doing it as, again as though I'm trying to say that. And what we said the other day, you know, I'm not trying to get you. Well, I really am trying to just say, look, lads, the band, you know, like, should we try it like this, you know? I know it's it's this one, it's like should we play guitar through A June? Well I don't think we should. Yeah, okay, well I don't mind. I'll I'll play, you know, whatever you want me to play. Or I won't play at all if you don't want me to play. No, whatever it is that will please you, I'll do it. <laughs> Diplomatically brings up Hey Jude. Yeah. Which we know was a falling out. It's like, why reopen that? Because it, it wasn't but, that long ago and it was a big hit. But, you know, that's their dynamic, okay? That's what's going on at the time. But again, it's just like that little bit is thrown in. And, of course, the negative resonates more than the positive often in life. So we've all glommed on to that for the last, you know... Well, for, almost, the, for the last half century. For, for the, yeah, for the last half century. And... Again, it's just, it doesn't seem right to just drop that in. It's just like dropping in a grenade and then running the other way. You know, it's like, well, what was that about? It's it's a very curious film. I will say it's 80 minutes long, but it feels like the longest 80 minutes. And it's it's cut into these three awkward sections, you know, at, at, you know, at 20, 23 minutes in, you see these kind of almost vaudevillian black doors coming in from the left and the right. And the next thing you know, you're an apple. And then that happens again in the last 25 minutes of the film. The apple doors close and we're up on the roof. You know, none of these things yeah. with explanations. But but it just kind of struck me that you're right. There's no complete performances. Um, after the fight with George or the or the harsh words with George, the song played is Across the Universe, which was kind of a, a, a song that had no home. It's one of John's most beautiful, and yet the fabulous recording that they did right before they went to India was sort of relegated to a charity album when it really should have. It was such a fabulous song. It, it's kind of an in, indication to me that the perception of, you know, Paul, you know, maybe John was too strung out to really fight for, hey, listen, this is a great song. You got something better than this. And they kind of gave it away, and he kind of revisits it, but in a a rather sad way. If it's it's a sad version of Across the Universe, and of course that was part of the reason that they that Spectre went back and grabbed and remixed that song to include it in on the soundtrack album. But it was almost more of an afterthought to make the album kind of match what the film was going to be, and. Um, same thing with with George's uh, "I Me Mine," which he introduces uh, a little, a couple of minutes later, almost apologizing. I, I've got this, yeah. you know, you don't have to use it if you don't want it, or something like that. It it seems like both. Yeah, I don't think he's so much apologizing as a kind of dig, because as we know, what then happens when they, you know, end up, he walks out on the group, and then comes back, and the negotiation includes that they're not going to be doing any of his songs up on the roof because he doesn't want them being just sort of mistreated or, you know, marginalized, basically. The whole reason this project began in the first place is kind of a strange thing in Beatles history where they had 
the White Album is a success. You know, Hey, hey Jude is going to be a huge hit. And the whole filming of Hey Jude and Revolution for Frost on Sunday, which then gets distributed, they decide to have an audience and gets distributed around the world. And there was so much excitement. I remember even when it was, interestingly enough, it was not on the Ed Sullivan show for us kids in America. It was on the Smothers Brothers show, which was seen as a thousand times hipper, you know, than, than poor Ed. Uh, and I remember Tommy Smothers' intro to it was, he's so excited. He goes, you know, the last few years when we see the Beatles, it's it's been a film of them singing to on a film, trying to say miming without using that word. But here yeah. they are, they're in front of an audience and it's so exciting and, you know, here they are, live again. That was so successful. And I think if you look, especially at the Revolution film, they're having fun doing Revolution. Mm-hmm. That somebody in the camp must have said, "Hey, how about this? How about we do a TV show with all these songs from the White Album?" And that morphed into, "Well, wait a minute. Why don't we just write new ones and perform those live?" Also, Paul was keen to get back to live performance because that's what he recognized united the band. You know, they'd been fragmenting certainly during the White Album sessions. And he was looking at something that would pull them back together and, you know, going on the road. That was, you know, a big part of the motivation, which brings me also to a segment that you mentioned a bit earlier, which is where he's talking about when they played De Montfort Hall, Leicester, and, you know, about playing the clubs again and how, you know, at first maybe they did a rough show and then, but the next night they were a bit better and, they improved as they kept playing. And John's just listening and he's smoking and he's sort of like, you know, puffing the smoke out and stretching his arms. And that again has been framed as, oh, you know, some people said, oh, that's, you know, Lennon was just on heroin right the way through the get back sessions. And he's completely disengaged. Not true. No evidence of that at all. We know of at least one day maybe where he was high on smack. But apart from that, he does look engaged all the way through. And I don't know if it's going to be in the Get Back movie, if it's going to be sort of redressed. But certainly if you listen to the audio of that segment, what it reveals is that after John listens, and you know he's making eye contact and he's just listening to what Paul says, he then answers. Yeah, he responds. Yeah. So it's... You know, again, but they cut it that way, not most likely with that intention, but again, it feeds that narrative. You know, people have created a narrative around not only what you see in the film, but what John said in the Rolling Stone interview, and then what George said in Anthology about the Beatles' winter of discontent. But when I watched it a couple of nights ago, I wasn't taking notes. I thought, I'm just going to watch it as a viewer you know, yeah. and, and just go straight through. And I have to say that it started off sort of reaffirming my fears about watching it, you know, that it was sort of downbeat. But of course, I'm engaging with Beatles here. And so how bad's that ever going to be? So as it was going along, I was beginning to enjoy it more. Once we get to Apple, everything, the mood does seem to lift. And even the setting, at least they look like they're in a studio of some kind. And then we get to the rooftop and it does work, the rooftop, even though they could have done a much better job of that. 
at least, you know, it leaves the film on a very upbeat note. And I know that's when I left the cinema, I enjoyed the film. Yeah, well, it was so exciting to to see that. I mean, you talk about iconic. Um, their individual looks were kind of iconic, you know, Ringo and the red slicker and, you know, George's frilly bit. I mean, they looked completely futuristic or in the moment. And I, I think Paul absolutely had a point. And John later on said, you know, I really admired Paul for being willing to go back to the dance halls and start all over again. And and the point, too, uh, that shouldn't be lost on anybody was when the Beatles left the stage in Candlestick Park in August of 66, uh, Barry Tashian from The Remains, one of the opening acts, one of the very important acts on the 66 tour, said, you know, modern concert technology was invented 15 minutes after the Beatles left Candlestick Park. And he's kind of right, because what do you have next spring is you've got the Monterey Pop Festival and the importance of live rock and roll started with Monterey, in a sense. It it didn't become dangling a few mics and, you know, hoping to, you know, got live if you want it record by the Stones or something. It Suddenly the live component was the testing ground, and I think Paul knew that. And if you listen to, um, not long ago I was listening to WBCN tape, uh, the famous WBCN acetate, of Get Back, there was also a, a, an acetate. They also had a, a preview copy of Abbey Road, which people don't know about, and they played that before that came out. It has a slightly different version of the song Something on it. But the DJ at the time, I think it was J.J. Jackson, later to, uh, later to be famous on MTV, he brings up a question. He goes, you know, this album, he goes, the Beatles are a, a fine, fine band, but I was wondering, you know, can they still down. Can they still do it? Meaning live. Mm -hmm. And I think that was very much in the minds. You're seeing, you know, Woodstock now had later in 69 and the idea of Jimi Hendrix performing there, all those bands performing live. So Paul's instincts were correct. Uh, Just being a studio band like Steely Dan, that's 10 years from now, it seems like, right? So so his, his instincts were really correct. And even, you know, even George went back out on the road before, you know, for a major tour than around Mm. before any of the others did. And actually, they really do rock it. I was going to say that, you know, how many times have I seen that rooftop gig? But watching it the other night, I really enjoyed it. They're they're really good. Uh, You know, everyone's on, I think. Uh, George is actually, again, you know, this whole thing of he hasn't got a strong presence in that segment because he doesn't do one of his songs but he looks like he's enjoying himself and john's in great voice so's paul they're really tight and even the songs that aren't my favorites like dig a pony watching the other night i thought yeah he's got that down you know the the vocal is really cool i thought it was great what what made me i'm watching it again after so many years uh, from the original and i'm thinking why didn't they do Old Brown Shoe? You know, that would have, or, you know, I, I would have loved yeah. to have seen a rough live version of that, you know, kind of feeling their way through it because it's a song yeah. that sort mm-hmm. of works rough. Well, that wasn't going to happen. No, you know, uh, what, just... but, you know, what they couldn't have made an 11th hour, you know, George kind of saying, hey, this is pretty good, you know, just have a quick huddle uh, while they're changing film canisters and say, hey, let's do, let's do that Old Brown Shoe, you know, because they had that one down, you know, they, 
Uh, you know, actually, the windy day, it, you, t you mentioned, you know, iconic before. It helps with the iconic images, right? You know, of Lennon, instead of, like, looking straggly, the hair just hanging down, it's blowing back. Oh, yeah. And, he, and he's wearing, you know, Yoko's fur coat. And uh, it, it is, it's the iconic Lennon look, right, on the rooftop. It is. Doing, you know, Don't Get Me Down, and, and the long hair just swept back. Everything works there. <laughs> I remember thinking five years later how cool they looked. Like in a whole new way. Oh, yeah. Like they had looked really cool with the suits, but even by the end of the, the matching suits, it's starting to get a little too cute. 
You know what I mean? A little bit too much. Everybody, had, you know, a little too Dave Clark Five. But now they came out there looking, you know, as funky as cream on their funkiest day, you know? So I thought it was, um, yeah, it is. That's that's where the film breathes. It, 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 oh, yeah. It and actually the editing works, you know, with, with the uh, the people down in the street either complaining or, you know, whooping it up. It, it That really does work. It's very comical, actually. And, and, and the thing with the cops... You know, I mean, talk about setup. I love the way that we first see them coming, you know, sort of discussing it with the business owners or whatever. And then you see them walking up, you know, to the Apple door. And I think it's about the second time that we see them hovering around there that they've got things set up inside. And you have the guy then from the inside, we have, you know, the shot of him opening the door to them and then Mal coming in. But, I mean, it does make them look like complete dicks, basically, doesn't it? It started to filter up from our roadie. Mal would sort of come creep in trying to keep out the camera. He said, police are complaining, you've got to stop. We said, we're not stopping, keeping going. He said, the police, he come up to him and he said, police are going to arrest you. Good end to the film. Let them do it. Great, you know. And we thought, well, that's an end. You know, Beatles busted on rooftop gig, you know. The thing on the roof that always I feel let down about with the police, you know, because someone in the neighborhood called the police and the police came up and I was playing away and I said, oh, great. You know, I hope they drag me off. You know, I wanted the cops to drag me off, get off those drums, you know, because we were being filmed and it would have been really great. Well, they didn't, of course. They just came bumbling in. You've got to turn that sound down. <laughs> you know, so could have been fabulous. Which he's right, it would have been fantastic, but as a great way to end the show. Something else to consider, you know, again, the context of the times. I don't know how familiar you are with any sort of 1960s TV documentaries, but they weren't the same animal that they became in the 70s, the 80s, and on and on to where we are today. You know, I remember seeing one about Marilyn Monroe from, I think, about 1966, the director... John Houston narrates it, and it's really rough and very, very basic. And then I remember, like, how things started to evolve in the 70s. They were trying to make things more naturalistic. I've got a documentary about James Dean uh, where some of the interviewees, it's as if they were just caught on the fly by a camera crew and sound crew. There's one guy who's under the hood of his car in his driveway, <laughs> And he's, he's just still leaned over the engine while he's sort of looking up and talking about James Dean. Um, so these things have evolved, as I say. You know, in the 80s, a lot of very glossy and trashy documentaries on TV, especially coming from the US. So how do you think, in that context, what Michael Lindsay Hogg did with this documentary fit in with those times? The one mistake, I think, from a shot selection... Those early documentaries, like you say, I'm I'm thinking of another one from the 60s, uh, which was a, J, a very quickly put together John F. Kennedy documentary called uh, Years of Lightning, Day of Drums. And that, that yeah, was and that was narrated by Gregory Peck. Well, right. And once again, you know, not the smoothest shot selection. Uh, things jump around a bit. I think that was sort of expected. I think documentaries had very small, they still have fractional budgets next to a real Hollywood production, if you will, scripted drama, still, you know, much less money put into them. I think what's missing, the key element was 
a Gregory Peck, a um, uh, John Huston. In the case of of the 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 great early Beatles documentary, The Complete Beatles, no Malcolm McDowell. You know, there is no narrator, and I think that that's where it. You know, it was a bold move, but a mistake in a sense. I think a narrator would have helped and made it more like the other 60s films and maybe you'd look past some of the jump cuts. Well, it would have certainly have provided a narrative. Yeah, exactly. We've got, we've got, uh, I mean, I prefer not to have a voiceover personally, a narrator, but, you know, that was the style of the time, certainly to have one. And yeah, that would have provided the story. It would have given some context. I, I know that uh, there's a very rare version around of what's happening in the USA, the, the Maisel's Brothers film, which we later got out on DVD as the first U.S. visit. And when that was first on television in the United States, the first time they broadcast that, they decided that people wouldn't understand the Beatles' accents, and it was all kind of mumbling and, and, and uh, you know, Liverpool accents. So they actually got Carol Burnett to be the narrator. And she narrates through the version that got shown on US TV, uh, kind of explaining the context of certain things and then letting it go. She doesn't talk over the Beatles, but she kind of sets it up in certain places. And I think people just expected that. And this, I guess, is the fly on the wall. You, you, you guys figure it out. But I think it would just, it would have helped a lot if, if it uh, had not been presented the way it, it was. Um, yeah, and I feel as, as I say, the reason I said that final act of the of the three acts when they're up out when they walk through that door to get up onto the roof is where I finally feel like I can breathe and the film breathes and it comes alive because before that yeah. it's very claustrophobic. Oh God, yeah, especially again at Twickenham, it really is. There's so much clutter in in the picture. Yeah, literally. But there's still plenty of clutter when they're at Apple because that's that's where I remember yeah. these shots where they're looking through mic cords and behind amplifier, you know, it's this kind but of But there's a lot more where they look like they're enjoying it at Apple. Without yes. a doubt. That darkness, the gloominess lifts at Apple to be fair. You know, if you didn't have Twickenham starting the film and it had started at Apple in that cut, literally, you know, you sort of reduce the running time to whatever it would would be 50 minutes or so. It would be a more upbeat film. It could have also, like you know, there's only a few minutes where I don't know if the humor selections always worked. I know that uh, obviously there's the hilarious version of Besame Mucho, but let the whole thing go. They kind of make cuts into it so that you don't, it doesn't flow. You know, where Paul's doing his Ricky Ricardo voice. Yeah, I do like the segment where Paul and Ringo are jamming on the piano. Yeah, that was obviously, that's fun. And and you and, do... And they let that roll a bit, at least. Yeah, and you and you actually see Ringo working for a few seconds with George on Octopus's Garden, which is foreshadowing George and Ringo as a hit songwriting team with Photograph in 1973. They went to number one. So that's kind of a cool moment that gets a little bit overlooked. But humor-wise, there were really funny things as some of the outtakes came out over the years and things pirated out of uh, the studios. Those bits in the teaser, you know, John and George dancing and, you know, I mean, why was none of that included? You have to sort of wonder... What was the Beatles' input here? You know, were they, did they really want, as John said about the album, just to put out this shitty version and break the image? 
You know, what was the point of this cut? What drove it? You know, so we're sitting here saying, oh, well, you know, it's so gloomy that they didn't include. But why? Why? Yeah. When I look at this and I see some of the stuff we're getting in the trailers, I'm thinking out of 56 or 59 hours, why did you choose this? Or did they just lose interest? Was it like, OK, you know, we've selected the footage for the three hour cut. We're just going to chop out all of this stuff about John and Yoko, whatever it is that we're taking out. And we're going to knit together what's left. That's what it looks like, as if they just lost interest and knit the whole thing together as quickly as possible. We also have to look within the context of the times. And it's we're all guilty of looking back at the past and judging it by today's standards, which is always incredibly dangerous. Remember at the time, Michael Lindsay Hogg's a young guy. Uh, he's trying to make a living. <laughs> you know, they. I'm sure they had a very small budget to call, you know, for his editing or whatever. And he, he probably, and a, and a tight time schedule. And it's not like now, you know, where everybody knows, good God, this is like if you had film of Moses or something, you know, uh, you got to take this with a religion, you know, it's real, real important. Hey, it was these guys that were incredibly important, but oh, they're at the end, you know, they've broken up. Now they're going to go to do their own thing. And, and this was almost like an afterthought. They're also trying to assuage egos here, right? This has now entered the picture big time in the Beatles story. And so, you know, the people who are working around them are having to work around that dynamic. I mean, I remember back in maybe the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s, and the Rolling Stones put out a tour book. And someone was telling me about all the negotiating at you know, went on with that, where, you know, if Mick is on that page, then the next one's got to have a photo of Keith and, and so on and so forth. And so, you know, that also must have heavily entered the picture here with Let It Be. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me, you know. Certainly, though, I look at this film and then I look at the album, which, of course, only matches up in certain places. You know, there's, you know, the Phil Spector version of the album, I mean. And... I think of how interesting that did George demand or who who made the decision for three of the Beatles to go back into the studio in January of 70 and mm. cut a cut a studio version of I Me Mine which for for many years was the last Beatles recording session, right? Yeah, and also he overdubbed a new lead guitar part for Let It Be. Yes, yes indeed. So, you know, what was the story behind that? Um, you know, so it's funny to see which thing influenced the other and how the two work together awkwardly and how Paul for many, many, many years has been trying to redo the whole thing, whether it was Let It Be Naked or, you know, some of the sections in Anthology. So what we're going to do, our next shows after this are going to come in quick succession. We're going to review each of the two-hour Get Back broadcasts within about 24 hours so that people can tune in right away to our initial reviews of this mind-blowing release. Yeah. When I find myself in times of trouble Mother Mary comes to me Speaking words of wisdom, let it be And in my 
darkness She is standing right in front of me Speaking words of wisdom Let it be 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 Whisper words of wisdom Let it be When all the broken hearted people Living in the world agree There will be an answer Let it be For though they may be parted There is still a chance That they will see There will be an answer Let it be conclusion you know my sort of 2021 review of the film i ultimately still enjoyed it it's beatles right and it it does get better as it goes along and by the time of the rooftop concert i was totally into it so it isn't as bad you know things kind of mushroom right you know reputation and that's unfair i'd most likely give it what like three stars out of four 
on the basis that it's Beatles and that music and it's still their personalities and the fantastic rooftop ending. But it is also, for me, an exercise in how to take, like, the greatest group on earth and make a bad film out of it. It's a curious... The last 20 minutes are glorious. The the 15 minutes before that are are very interesting because basically before you go up on the roof, you get three music videos, essentially. You get two of us, you get Let It Be, and you get Long and Winding Road, basically set up as a conventional multi-camera shot video. There's no discussion. Uh, it's complete performances of those songs. And... and uh, so I kind of say the last 40 minutes or so are really amazing. I mean, you kind of get dulled to it, but I almost enjoy it more the last 40 minutes than I did previously. Why is that? Because the versions of Let It Be and Long and Winding Road and Two of Us are different. They're not the record. Right. So There will be no sorrow. Exactly. There will be no sorrow in Let It Be. So you are, in a sense, getting a live Let It Be and a live long and winding road. Those are songs that technically, they weren't going to get the piano up on the roof, just too much. So it does work in a weird way as, you know, that last live section of, of the, uh, the last 40 minutes are just glorious. And so if you have to go through some draggy moments in the previous 40 minutes, I guess that's the price of admission. On reflection, looking at it again, it looks a lot less murky on what was released to home video or Laserdisc. The thing in the theater was absolutely darker that I saw, you know, darker yeah. physically, and yeah. images weren't as sharp. And so it's going to be really great to have this exact cut someday, you know, transferred better, you know, even from the original. And I know it exists. I know they did a 5.1 mix to it years ago. You know, and, and, and I'm looking forward to that because that's something I think Giles Martin shines at when, when they get to those 5-1 mixes. However you feel about it, I'm always iffy about remixing anything from the past, but not when it comes to that because, man, that's going to be fun. And it will really en enhance the experience of feeling like, okay, we're flies, you know, we're in the middle of them making this thing. So uh, I have complete faith that Mr. Jackson is going to blow us away. We are going to think we know the story, and I, I just have a feeling there's going to be a couple of twists and turns, and that'll really excite us. And may it uh, be just like Anthology did. Anthology was the series that launched a million fans. And I just hope we get as much as we can get on George leaving the sessions. Yeah. I, I w yeah, Isn't it great, though, that they're holding— we need to have surprises. I don't want to be yeah. waiting and say, okay, now this happens. Now this ha I want to be like, what the hell's going to happen now? You know. Yeah, they didn't show us much of, of the rooftop either, did they? Just setting up in the trailer, but you, nothing of the actual rooftop performance. Well, you know, think about when Let It Be Naked came out. Do you remember the remade videos of the rooftop from that that didn't have, they yeah. weren't at the same shots. And those were incredibly exciting. You're like, wow, wow, wow. And, and they looked much, much better quality. And that's before Mr. Jackson ever got involved with his technology. So they're going to, I think that show on the rooftop, quite honestly, is going to be breathtaking. In anthology, we have, you know, other footage. We have them discussing going up on the roof. There's a reverse shot on the roof, you know, of behind the group. Um, but also I recall... 
there was a segment where Paul at Twickenham, he may be talking Michael Lindsay Hogg, but he's sort of saying about, you know, we could be creative here and have these, you know, incredible tracking shots, maybe, you know, cameras coming, you know, like tracks along the ceiling and and film us from all these different angles, these sort of sweeping shots. And that's the Beatles, right? They want to be innovative, you know, they're creative. They always, you know, broke new ground. And I think at this point it was like, look, you're the filmmaker, you go away and do that. You know, we did our film already and we know where that went, so you handle this. And there's nothing groundbreaking at all about the film. There was none of the real creative shots. There was just the cinema verite thing. I think they were cropping in because I do notice the film quality changes in places. So they're probably optically cropping in a little bit. We can do it a lot better today. The thing that gets me about the original film, everything is a hard cut. There is no dissolve. Right. There's no, you know, fading, cross-fading images at all. And that's what makes those jump cuts at Twickenham even more harsh. Absolutely. If they had just if they had crossfaded, I mean, that's that's a storytelling technique. Oh, okay. The, yeah. This was going on yeah. too long, and now we're. It's just smoother. Yes. It's just more, you know, more smooth. Yeah. So we'll see you on the other side after the first get back broadcast. Yes. Not too much turkey, please. One, two,
Kuiper. Thanks, Mo. I'd like to say thank you on behalf of the group and ourselves. I hope we pass the audition. <laughs> the Beatles, Naked. Post-production by Richard Buskin. Theme music by Craig Bartow.